Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on, and the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, lovely people. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Still on a high, just loving new government. Just still cuddling those coalition agreements. Feel so excited. Feel that we're back on track feel that our country is coming back to us. I know I could be disappointed, but we're not going to be because we're going to hold them to account and it's going to deliver and it's going to be wonderful. Thank you so much, everyone. Oh, and we've got a great show coming up. We, do you want another thing to worry about? I don't know if I do, but we're going to be talking to Ananda Card from Leader We in New Zealand. Um, should we worry about lead? When should we worry about? What should we do about it? Uh, that's the questions we're going to be asking her. And we've also got our favourite regular, Professor Guru Wally Richards, fantastic gardening advisor. <clears throat> He's back with us. So buckle up, stay tuned, stay sharp. You're on Rally Check Radio with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media. And now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members 
to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness. It wasn't that long ago when I used to have a rather, what's the word, blasé attitude to health. Just listen to the experts, do what they said, don't care too much. Not anymore. Sort of got to look at things for yourself and work it out. That's what we've learned. And that not, uh, it's a scary thing that the health experts don't necessarily have our best interests at heart. And to help us uncover what the story is with lead, because I thought lead was something we had dealt with a long, long time ago, we have the starter of lead awareness or lead aware, Ananda Card. Good morning, Ananda. Good morning, Rodney. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're American. Yeah. <laughs> We're about to hold it from. against me. <laughs> no, I love America. I love Americans. It's the greatest country on earth. For sure. That's what a lot of Americans think. I think New Zealand's pretty good too, though. <laughs> of course it is, but um, I love America. I, I love its history. I love its people. I um, love its resilience. I love its political system. And because it's big and powerful, everyone likes to knock it, and it's the West. But you still go there. I just recently went, and it's still amazing. Yeah. I'd be I've proud been, to be back for a long time. I'd be proud it. to be American. I'd be very proud to be British. Um, just such a wonderful, rich history. How did you get the name Ananda? Uh, so it's actually pronounced Ananda, not Ananda. People think Ananda. it rhymes with Amanda, so they'll call me Ananda. And even sometimes um, Kiwis will think that it just must be my American accent saying my name wrong. <laughs> so they keep yeah. calling me Ananda. Um, but it's Ananda, which is a Sanskrit word for bliss. Bliss, nice. So my um, parents were into Eastern religion and um, uh, meditation from India, and that's how they heard them. Were they hippies? A little bit, yeah, yeah. Isn't that funny? Ananda, is that right? Ananda. Yeah, that's right. Thanks. Do you get sick of having to correct everyone that thinks you've misspelled it and it's really Amanda? No, I don't really correct people that much unless I'm meeting them for the first time. But if, if someone keeps calling it me, I just, you know, it's not, it doesn't bother me too much. But, you know, if I meet someone uh, for the first time, I Ananda. exactly. Tell me how you got into this making us aware of lead. Yeah, so I was really super clueless. Um. I mean, I knew, so background, just growing up in America, Americans seem to have this kind of ingrained knowledge and fear of lead um, that I'm now learning that Kiwis don't have. Um, and I think that may come from regulations and things in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, maybe we had like PSAs on TV about lead paint or something when I was a kid. I have no idea. But so I kind of had that in my background. But in terms of my everyday life, it just was not in my consciousness at all. Um, but then in 2019, my family moved to Gisborne and we bought a 1929 old um, bungalow and we had these lead light windows, so many lead light windows and our neighbors used to play cricket next to them. And so while I'm breastfeeding my baby, who's um, about six months old at the time, and I had a, a three and a half year old too. Um, I was just, you know, Googling random things, 
you know, what happens to lead light windows if a ball comes through it? Is that expensive to fix? Like, do I need to get on my neighbors about not playing right there? <laughs> and then I realized that the the lines, the cames in the windows are pure lead, which, you know, seems really obvious, but was not something I even knew at the time at all. Um, and we had some, oops, sorry. We had some lead light windows that came right down to, you know, maybe 20 or 30 centimeters off the floor where my oh, wow. baby used to pull himself up on the table and play right there by the front door. And I was like, holy crap, like, you know, if they're up high, you know, maybe that's not something to think about, but he could touch these, like there's lead right there that he can touch. And so then I started, like, that was just the beginning of a long cascade of learning about lead. And so I started to get really paranoid and I wanted to test the kids' blood to see if they had it in them. Um, my husband thought I was paranoid. He's like, no, 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 no. And um, I called the GP and the GP said, nope, there's no way that your kids have any lead in them unless you've recently had your house painted. And I was like, yeah, but we have these windows and our house is old and, you know, that's there's all these risk factors. So... Finally, what I ended up doing, which <laughs> I could get past my husband because <laughs> he wouldn't let me test the kids, was sending some samples away. So I sent some soil samples and some vacuum dust samples to Hill Laboratories. And they came back pretty high. Um, our veggie box soil was not that high, but right alongside the house was um, like in seven or 800 ppm. And New Zealand soil is considered contaminated at 210 ppm. Wow. So uh, just just let me digest that. So yeah. you took the soil from and vacuum dust and mm -hmm. you sent it off to Hill Laboratories. That's in New Zealand. Yep. In Hamilton. At, I used to work there. Okay. And was that very expensive? No. Uh well, I mean, it's relative. It's about fifty something dollars per sample. Okay. So you got it tested and it yeah. came back the soil, first of all, was seven hundred parts per million. Or seven or eight hundred around there, yeah. Yeah, and mm -hmm. you said that the acceptable level declared by our authorities' experts is two hundred. Two hundred and ten. Yep. If you're over the level, what does that mean? You have to dig the soil out. What does what does being over the level imply? Oh well, that's a that's a whole conversation. <laughs> um, so okay, well, you carry on. You tell it in your own time because I was just trying to slow you down on those okay. numbers. <laughs> All so right. Now, yeah. And you got – so you carry on. I'm sorry. I was just trying to get my head okay, around. Okay, so we'll get to that. Um, so my, the soil is too high and the vacuum dust was 300 and something parts per million. And so if you think about that, there aren't any standards for vacuum dust in the whole world. Um, but – you could kind of go along with the soil levels. So if you yeah. think that 210 is contaminated in soil, surely you don't want your indoor dust to be higher than that, right? And you've um, got a baby crawling all over the floor. On the floor, yeah. Mm -hmm. Putting everything in their mouth. Yeah. Is hubby now getting alarmed? Yeah, yeah, he got on board after that. <laughs> so then we I tested the kids and we did more samples I and a lot more samples person. and a lot more testing. We spent thousands of dollars on testing and now, like every inch of that house is mapped, and we know how much lead is in every part of it. But, You're still um, in the house. You're still in that house. I'm not in the house anymore because my husband and I recently separated. So I'm oh, in a I'm different sorry, house now with okay. different issues. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but uh, the, one of the samples that I sent away next was I took um, like the stick part of the vacuum, I took the, the, the handle thing, uh, the floor thing off, and I just vacuumed really, really intensely um, within about half a meter or a meter of all of our lead light windows. So I, I just got it out and I intensely vacuumed in all those places and I we measured the, the area so I could find out how much lead per um, area there was. But in the end, that, that calculation didn't matter so much. But the dust that was in th that area of the windows just directly below them was over 2,000 ppm lead. Because it turns out that lead light windows and stained glass, like pure lead just sitting there, just releases tiny little particles of lead. It just dusts down under the surface below it within about a meter really high lead levels just by it just sitting there just oxidizing in the air and just being exposed to the sun and just sitting there and so um and even i tested the window sills just directly underneath the lead light windows and so there's um standards for what's considered hazardous for lead dust on floors for babies and um the scientists except uh, uh agree that five micrograms of lead per square foot of floor is um, a hazardous level for babies. <clears throat> but these windows, just the windowsill directly under the lead light windows, was over 400. And that they had just been painted like a couple of months before. So that, that and we probably didn't dust them because it was pretty up high. So, um, yeah, so our levels in the windowsill was over 400 micrograms per square foot. And what you would be as a young as a young mother, where all you want to do is protect your baby. Yeah, you would be beside yourself, thinking you're living inside a hazardous waste dump. Yeah, totally, and that's what happens to so many mothers when they start realizing these hazards. Um, it's really scary. <laughs> would you think your house? Given its age, given the lead light windows, do you think that was would be especially atypical, or would other houses no. have it? Every know. single house with lead light windows will have that same problem. Lead light windows are as much of a dust, a lead dust hazard as chipping lead paint for babies. Carry on. Even just My having goodness. like a stained glass like bird in the window is still a risk. I had friends who had a stained glass bird in their kitchen window and they kept their salt and pepper underneath it. And I was like, no, you don't, you have to move your salt. Like you can't, <laughs> you can't keep that there. Like that's dangerous. You would sound nutty though until you. Yes, that's the thing. And everybody would be like, no, 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 no. That's crazy. And the doctors would think you're crazy and nobody believes it. And, you know, even there isn't even any good established scientific literature on this lead light windows being a lead poisoning risk. But if you talk to um, people who actually test houses, um, especially in America, there's a lot of these um, investigators um, and anybody, even in New Zealand, who's done environmental analysis in houses, everybody knows that it's a huge problem. But if you try to Google it, it's really hard to find. Like it's, it really seems not, um, not very well established, but it is. <laughs> and so, so what, yeah, then so you start to feel crazy and paranoid, and nobody believes you, and things are just you know a little bit crazy. And yeah, so I've had some problems with that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we all have. 
Um, so <laughs> you have measured this. You have established it, that it's extremely high. But I don't know what that means. Like they've put a number in. Presumably any level is not great. But anyway, yeah. it's over the official level, not by a smidgen, but by a lot. Factors multiple of multiples. So then what happens? So we did test the kids and um, my baby, the six month old, or maybe he was by that time nine months old, did have an elevated um, amount of lead in his blood. Um, at the time, it was not concerning at all because the levels have changed. So the in, um, blood lead is a notifiable test in New Zealand and the level right now that's um, notifiable is five micrograms per deciliter. Those are the American units, which is much easier to understand. Um, but at the time it was 10 and my baby's levels were 4.8. So even by today's standards, it's just a little bit below that. But back in 2019, um, his being 4.8 and the notifiable level being 10, like nobody cared at all. Like it didn't even matter. They just consider that's normal and safe and fine. But, um, but the, sci the scientific literature um, has established that even levels as low as one, which is lower than the average level in New Zealand, can see detrimental um, health effects. So there's, and that's why they say there's no safe level of lead because it doesn't matter how low they look, they still see um, issues, people having health issues. And what does it do to us? So, a lot of things. Lead affects every system in the body, like every single one of them. Um, but the the biggest concern is for babies and kids, or also um, babies in utero. Prenatal exposure is a big thing, um, because kids and babies' brains are still developing, and um, lead is a neurotoxin, so it, it d disrupts that development. And it's really difficult situation because oftentimes when babies or kids are exposed to lead, there's no symptoms at all, zero symptoms. Um, the big, the most common symptom is no symptoms. But um, so they could be exposed when they're six months old, but then it's not until, you know, they're three or four and they start having these crazy tantrums or they start school and they're having learning difficulties. Uh, having trouble sitting still, just having like aggression or impulsivity. And um, and then ADHD is also a side effect of lead poisoning. So that the um, scientific literature has established that 20% of ADHD cases, at least in the U.S., um, are caused by lead poisoning. Um, and autism, not autism itself, but lead poisoning can manifest as autistic symptoms down the line in, in older kids. Um, so, and there's a lot of these neurological issues that um, there's no way to trace it back. So if, if your kid, you know, when they're six or seven is having these problems and you're like, what? Oh, how did this happen? You know, it could be partly because if you have a family history of it, your kid might be more susceptible to damage from lead than other kids. Um, so, or it could just be random. Like um, a lot of there's a Facebook group um, for the American lead poisoning activist, Tamara Rubin. She's lead safe mama. Um, there's a lot of families who come to that group because in America, they do routine blood screening of babies and kids. 
at like one year and two years in many states, it's routine to have the, every time they go to the doctor for immunizations or whatever other things, they get their blood checked. And so families come um, to this group saying, oh my God, my baby has elevated lead and um, what do I do about this? I have no idea. But, um, and often there's no symptoms, but then you see some of the people who their kids are older, they've been exposed to higher levels of lead, you know, when they were younger. And like, um, there's lots of neurological issues that um, those families describe. But if you hadn't tested them when they were babies, you would have no idea that that's what happened. And so uh, for sure that's happening in New Zealand because it's really hard to get babies tested for here. It's not a routine thing here. And um, even if you want to get your kid tested, it's hard. Like I told you that um, my GP said, there's no way that they have any lead in their blood. Well, my baby was, you know, really close to what is now the notifiable level, which at the time did, it was the what notifiable did your, level in America. What did your GP say when those tests came back? Uh, nothing. It was below the notifiable level, so it wasn't concerning. Oh, I did end up contacting um, the community health people. I forgot the name of the organization. And they basically just said, oh, you know, here's a pamphlet which just said, make sure they get adequate calcium and iron and, you know, that's fine. <laughs> so if if your child or infant or baby is exposed to lead, like your ch children, that could be affecting them but not become apparent till later in childhood. Mm -hmm. Do they, do their lead levels drop? Like, do they get rid of the lead or does it stay with them? Well, the, the level in the blood drops, the half-life mm -hmm. of lead in blood is 30 to, it, well, it seems to be for kids, it can be as long as 90 days, but within a few yeah. months, um, it starts dropping quite quickly. If, the exposure has stopped. <clears throat> um, if the exposure is still there, then it will stay. If they're still being exposed, it will stay in the blood. But even when it does drop from the blood, when exposure stops, or as kids get older and they stop mouthing things and putting things in their mouth and crawling around on the floor, um, as the levels drop, it doesn't go away. It doesn't get eliminated from the body. It mostly just goes into the bone where it stays forever. So there's a lot of people like, you know, from our generations that were exposed to um, lead and petrol. And that is hands down the biggest um, historical exposure to lead is people who got it from uh, the tetraethyl lead from petrol. Um, in New Zealand, that happened for a much longer time than it did in America. So in, in the U.S., they got rid of lead in petrol in the 70s. But New Zealand, we kept using it until 1996. Um, so everybody born below before 1996 in New Zealand will have this massive plug of lead all in our bones. And the half-life of lead in bones is like 30 years. So it stays there pretty much forever. It starts to decrease as you get older. And, and they say that that is probably the reason for women having osteoporosis is that, um, so your body looks at lead as calcium in the bone. So it takes the lead into the bone as if it was calcium. And so when people get older, you know, the hormonal changes and bone remodeling 
um, it starts to be released from the bone and that's when the bones get weaker. And also that lead then becomes exposure in your body as you age because it's being released into your blood again. And so a lot of older people will have higher levels of lead because it's coming out of their bones. My goodness. Um, with the tetraethylated petrol, how did we ingest it? Was it in the air or in the ground and contamination? So tetraethyl lead is what's called organic lead, um, which is a really special kind of lead that is easily absorbed in all the ways. So um, it, it, mainly from inhaling it from car exhaust, I think. But also if you ever got it on your hands, it would absorb straight through the skin. So lead that's in things that we now have in our environment, the inorganic lead, like what's in paint, and um, brass and um, soil and those what soil comes from paint. Um, so all these this inorganic lead um, it, it doesn't really absorb through skin. So you have to eat it or you know knock it up into the air and inhale a lot of it. Um, or in the case of the lead light windows, you know if it's in your carpet, you know uh, babies crawling and knocking it into the air and inhaling it that way. Um, but tetraethyl lead was really easily absorbed just by breathing it, just from the car exhaust fumes, I think is how most people got exposed to it. But also the, um, the car exhaust settled into dirt around motorways, and um, and it's still there. That's even now from um, contaminated land on the side of motorways. So as it stands at the moment in New Zealand, mm-hmm. the big risk is to babies and infants yeah. with lead light windows and paint that might have been stripped some time back, years back, but still sitting in the soil? Uh, yeah, so let me clarify that point. Um, definitely lead light windows, but also babies living and kids living in old houses um, can be exposed to lead paint even without... So if if like their parents or landlord renovated the house or sanded down some windows or something like that, that would be something that would definitely be an exposure risk for the lead paint. Because um, especially if it's sanded or even just chunks falling off windows gets ground down into little bits of dust, which can easily make it into kids. Um, and that's and so renovations, just living in an old house that has deteriorating paint, but then also the soil because on not on the exterior of houses, especially weatherboards, um, you know, with our intense sun, north-facing weatherboards would have probably been sanded down or scraped down into the soil at some point. Um, and it's still there in that soil right next to the house. So people should never let their kids play in soil that's right next to their house because that's the, the highest risk place for lead. Um, but there's also other places where, other cases where lead contaminated soil has been moved around to other places like you know um, somebody dug up that soil and gave it to their neighbor to build a veggie garden (laughs) then it could be anywhere Mm. Um, but yeah the biggest risk to babies and kids is paint soil and I think definitely lead light windows and then paint can really um be get get into kids from an old house in so many different ways but the other thing is that um before 1950 the amount of lead that was in paint was way, 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 way higher. So like a 1900s house could have the lead, the paint on those um, houses, it's mostly exterior or windows, 
um, could be 50% lead. Um, in a 1920s house, it could be um, like 10 to 20%. But um, once you get down to 70s houses, then you're looking at like, you know, 1% to 2%. So houses built before 1950 are a major risk to kids. And it doesn't have to be just from renovations. Like if you renovate, you don't even have to be sanding lead paint. It could just be by taking a wall down because there's so much lead just even in the walls um, that could expose kids. You know, but things like like dealing with paint, like sanding and scraping, um, or the worst possible thing would be removing it with a heat gun. Because if you uh, burn off lead paint with a heat gun on the outside of your house, it seeps in through the walls and contaminates the entire house, just like lead everywhere that will continue to poison kids forever. So <laughs> but it's I'm invisible a- and people don't know. <laughs> Yeah. So if I'm a young mother or a young father or young parents and I've got young babies and children and I'm in an old house, loving it, character house, done it all up, what's your advice? Get the hell out of there, get it tested. What what should they do? So first of all, I think it's a risk for small children to live in a pre-1950s house full stop but um if you're already in one of those houses there's nothing you can do about that probably um so you need to make sure that your paint is in good condition and if it's not then you have to figure out what to do about it which is a whole huge problem um but the one of the best ways you could find out if you have problems is checking your vacuum dust so you could send that um to hill labs and have it tested like soil for around fifty dollars and um, and if your levels of dust of uh sorry of lead in your vacuum dust is like you know fifty or maybe even a hundred, that's not so bad. If you're getting more into like the 150, 200, 300 range, then I that's where I would consider that um a definite problem. And the, the other thing is that indoor dust often matches the levels of lead in the soil outside because mm-hmm. the dirt gets tracked in so and i've seen that in both um the in all the places both places i've lived recently um that if your outdoor soil is around 50 ppm then your indoor dust your vacuum dust will probably be around the same and actually in my old house with my ex this the one that um started me on this journey the soil in the backyard was all pretty much around three to four five hundred and so that matched our indoor dust being the 300 like i mentioned earlier so, um, but the, even dust, if you're outside, the, the, the dust inside is coming from the outside is basically the point. Yeah. But also, even if your soil outside might be fine, if you've got lead light windows and, you know, um, deteriorating lead paint um, on your windows inside, then that's going to be elevating your indoor dust as well. So um, vacuum dust is a really good way. And it's called sediment as a sample type when you send it to Hill Labs. Um it's and not a very pleasant thing, is it? No, no, it's really not. <laughs> and it, the other thing is it's hard to deal with. Um, that's the thing that we found in that old house. And what I learned is that if you hire um, a tradie to come and sort your windows out or even a painter, like they might not do the right thing and they could make things way worse. You know, like you have, if you have some chipping paint on your windows and somebody comes and just 
sand it down and it goes all over your dining room and into your carpet and all over your house, like you've just poisoned all your kids just by trying to fix the problem. Because the problem is so not understood here that um, people, that the tradies can make things worse, but because they don't know. And that's one of the things I like to change is, um, so in the U S they have, um, if anybody's working on a house that has lead paint, they have to have, um, training and certification and dealing with lead paint. So they know how to do it safely. And so that involves tons of, con um, containment. So putting up lots of plastic sheeting and isolating the area and protecting the ground outside and making sure that when you're working on it, any mess stays right there and you can clean it up and remove it rather than it just spreading everywhere and poisoning um, the family who's living there. Um, so it, that's something that I would really like to have it, here. It must be a very hard science and very hard for the data because it's not like, you know, immediate. So the cause Well, if you're testing the blood... It shows up immediately. It's in the immediate. Blood. So if you're but testing not, it, you can find it. But, but not the symptoms. Yeah, exactly. So how long has how long have I know like there's a theory at some stage I remember that the Roman Empire collapsed because they went mad because of the lead and their drinking yeah. pots. That might be an old wives' tale. I don't know. But how long in the modern world, or how long has lead been an issue? Was it an issue in the 1800s? Has it always been an issue? What? Yes. They well, as soon as they started using um, lead, I think, yeah. It's so. I just was watching a presentation yesterday, and there's a research paper from 1888 describing all the stuff that happens with lead, like the cardiovascular issues, the atherosclerosis, the um, um. I think even diabetes, like so many of these issues, which affect adults um, caused by lead, they've we've known about it since the 1800s. And even in the early 1900s, when they started using it in the paint everywhere and the petrol, like they still knew about it. And the companies kept like they kept it under wraps. Like they knew that their employees were being poisoned and they'd have to leave the job because they were so sick. But they just wanted to keep selling it and putting it everywhere in the whole world into engines and houses and now we're still dealing with that um those that corporate greed today and now it's like families that are having to deal with the consequences of it instead of those companies having to clean it up and the lead that was in the petrol just because you've cleaned up the petrol doesn't make all the lead beside the motorways go away no, yeah, it's still there beside the motorways. And there's even, they monitor um, air pollution, like in, in Auckland, they mon are routinely monitoring um, the air pollution and um, there's lead in the air because of the petrol way back then. And in um, there's a study in, in London uh, a couple of years ago showing um, the amount of lead that's still in the air pollution because of what was deposited all over the roadways. Back then. You have some background in chemical testing, right? Yeah. Tell us about that. Um, so I back in the US I worked for biotech and pharmaceutical companies during research doing research there and analytical testing. And then um eleven years ago when I moved to New Zealand, I worked for Hill Labs doing analytical testing there. So 
So I would develop new analytical tests and um, monitor and maintain um, some of their existing tests. So like the, I used to work on the honey method. So um, the uh, Manuka honey, you know, you'd measure different um, aspects of it to make sure that it was Manuka or not, mm. Mm. or um, a bunch of different tests. So yeah, I was working at Hill Labs for four years. So it's not like you were a complete neophyte getting into this area. You have some background in testing. Yeah. Some back in understanding chemistry and its effect on human beings. Um, I am blown away by this because I can't imagine what it would be like to have a young baby and hopping into bed at night and thinking every day they're getting poisoned. Yeah, it's not very fun. Um, I was really lucky that my husband at the time was on board with the whole thing. And like he made sure um, together to with us, with me, to learn all the right ways to renovate and doing all the containment and and making sure to keep the kids safe. We had so many issues where like some, we'd have to hire a tradie who would come in and just cause this huge mess or like something would happen and there would end up being just mess falling over everything, all the toys and our whole living room. We'd have to clean everything up and like just so many things happened that was just so stressful. And, but I had him on board with me knowing that this was really important and we had to do all the things to clean it up, to contain it, to do it the right way. But a lot of people don't have that. Like there's so many women who find out about lead poisoning and they see all these risks in their house, just like I did, but their partner will not even entertain the idea at all. And so there's literally nothing they can do. Um, And so that's even worse to know that you're in this environment that you know is toxic and is poisoning your baby and not be able to do anything about it. And it was really stressful for me even being able to do anything about it and having to do all the cleanup and all the um, just um, vigilance and all the stuff that we had to do. Um, but it's I can imagine, stressful. I bet I can imagine a tradie, and this would be me a few years ago, and I'd look at you as a mad American woman who's mentally <laughs> yeah, unwell <laughs> because this is how we've always done it and she's running around screaming her head off about lead and her babies, and you're saying, oh, another man American, right? (laughs) Yeah. Because it's so invisible. And it's not Yeah, I've had lots of trouble with um, even the mums at my play center. You know, like there's like a, a bunch of toys and things that I had identified as potentially risky, and there was one committee meeting we had, and um. It was like to decide if they were going to listen to me or not, if we're going to get rid of these toys that I had decided were risky or if they were going to listen to me at all about the lead stuff. And one of the moms was like, I just really don't care about lead. There's so many other things to worry about. (laughs) And I was like, like what? You know, like, okay, you want to prevent your baby from like falling down the stairs and having a head injury. Like you want to, you know, stop them from getting hit by a car. Like, okay, but can you not do that and be concerned about lead poisoning at the same time? Like (laughs) it was really interesting. Yeah. What are the authorities doing in New Zealand? Pretty much nothing. And that is something that's incredibly frustrating. Um, The only thing that we seem to be doing is 
as the rest of the world does something, then eventually a few years later, we'll get on board too. So like we've now brought down our notifiable level for the kids' blood and Australia decided to limit the amount of lead that's in tapware because, you know, the, tap, the brass and tapware for your kitchen sink will be putting lead into the water. And uh, about a decade ago, the U.S. lowered their levels to what they consider lead free, but it's still 0.025%, I think. And so uh, a couple of years ago, Australia decided to um, bring theirs down to the American levels, which then meant that now New Zealand had worse standards than the rest of the world. So then last year, uh, no, I think earlier this year, New Zealand decided to adopt that, what go on, on along with Australia. And um, the master plumbers have been fighting for that for a long time. They did a lot of really good work on that. And so now that's gonna happen here, but not until 2025. <laughs> um, and then Australia also decided to reduce the amount of allowable lead in paint down to 90 ppm, which is what uh, the World Health Organization has been encouraging all countries across the world to do. So Australia finally decided to do that. Um, and so, but we didn't, but now there's finally a proposal out to, to bring it down to go along with Australia. Because otherwise we end up being the place where all the most toxic stuff can be dumped and have that still be legal. So as the rest of the world does things, you know, eventually we kind of catch up, but there are a lot of ways that we're still not even catching up. Um, like even for ceramics, because there's there's lead in a lot of the glaze and color designs in ceramics. And in 2012, Australia reduced the allowable lead um, in their ceramics. And before that, we had an Australia-New Zealand joint um, standard. But in 2012, Australia reduced theirs. But for some reason, New Zealand didn't. So now we have worse standards in Australia. So um, And currently, ours match what's in the EU standards for ceramics and glassware. But the EU is about to drop theirs by 400 fold. And there doesn't seem to be any indication that we're gonna drop ours at all, which means that once the EU does that, we will be have the worst standards in the whole world. So people could take all their toxic ceramics and glassware and sell it here legally, no problem. And of course, even as you change the regulations, there's still a big carryover of existing taps of yeah paint. yeah because I mean, you're, you're not going to take out dealing... all the old stuff and everybody's not going to throw away their dishes yeah and we're dealing with you know paint from the 1900s still yeah 100 years over 100 years on um, so you can't get rid of the old stuff but it's really important to stop making the yeah. new stuff toxic because i'm least you sort stop of though i'm find myself understanding those women at the play center because we have so much with our kids to worry about. And then this is just like mind blowing, right? Well, and also it's not something that the government or the establishment is saying you should be concerned about this. You know, like it's not in the Plunkett book. It's not, your doctor's not telling you to watch this. So it does almost seem like paranoia, but um, I mean, the like the World Health Organization recently declared lead as the most toxic substance substance of any chemical more than asbestos more than uh, pfas more than like every other heavy metal and pesticide that lead is the most concerning chemical of everything um so but a, in new zealand like you wouldn't know it so i'm a young mother listening to this show i'm living in a 
Twenty's house. I've got old taps and beautiful crockery. And <laughs> a baby. The Royal, Royal Dalton um, stuff from the 1900s. <laughs> a baby and recently renovated. Where do I go for help? To what, to, uh, have I got a problem or not? Or do yeah, I just. Pretty much me at Letterware and Zed, um, because there aren't really other kind of. And would you help me if I was in that position? Yeah, yeah. People come into me all the time, um, and I'll um, try to figure out what their situation is and what their biggest risks are, and advise them on the best testing they could do to determine um, how bad the situation is, and recommend them to go to their doctor and get their baby tested. You know, if they have just renovated. Um, I'm talking to Ananda Card. Uh, of Ledawea, New Zealand. And I sort of started off this thinking, oh, yeah, this was an old thing that we used to have in old houses with paint. And I didn't realize that it was right in our face to this extent. Yeah, and well, even the Easter Paw Patrol mugs that have been coming out in the past few years, completely covered in lead in the glaze on the, on the, the Paw Patrol characters on the outside, some of them 40% lead. Brand new stuff you can buy in the store still. Like, this is still a big problem. It's gobsmacking, right? Yeah. Um, how are your children? How are they or how old are they? Sorry. How are they? Good. I mean, <laughs> so we've just recently separated, so there's been some, um, some issues where <laughs> I think that they've been... Um, you know, dealing with and recovering from um, now. But um, my, so my baby who at the time I realized this was exposed to lead um, in the old house, he, we have, he's, he has some issues, but we're not really sure if it's because of the lead, you know, like he's, um, he is a bit impulsive and um, I wouldn't say, delayed but he has trouble making friends and um he tends to be aggressive and like hit when he gets upset and things like that so like you know we're going through the cams uh child adolescent mental health um program with doing a parenting program with them and trying to find out ways to support him which is generally a good thing for all parents i think but so he does have a little bit of you know trouble He's now just turned five. Mm, and because so, you'll never know, will you? You'll never know. We'll never know if it's because of lead or, you know, just being a middle child or, you know, having his parents separated or all the things, you yes. know. There's no way to know. Yes, and, of course, you have your kids and, like, you can end up beating yourself up terribly over um, not taking something seriously. Mm. At the time, yeah. I, I, um, we had our kids all immunized, and I equivocated. We both equivocated and equivocated and equivocated over it. And I was a great follower of the Western A Price, and they said, "Don't do it." Yeah, I thought mm. they're right about everything, but maybe they're just wrong on this. And to back then. I couldn't imagine all the health authorities and all the doctors and all the agencies being wrong. And um, 
So I thought, oh, I'm balanced. At the end of the day, while I thought about it, I was still pretty glib. And then when I read RFK's book, I had no idea the amount of immunizations these poor little babies get. You know, bang, bang, bang. And you're taking them along. And and at that time, we were in a 1910 house renovating. And now I'm beside myself about that. You know? <laughs> I know. Looking back, I know it's yeah, <laughs> it's rough. <laughs> and um, I know of other parents who have older kids, grown up kids, who have had health issues, and they've kicked themselves about renovating an old house when they were babies. And um, it's hard being a parent, right? Um, behaviorally, and 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 the idea that there are these chemicals or you're going along trying to do the right thing by medical authorities, and you don't feel as though you're in a position where you can just take things for granted, but it's too hard to try and figure out on your own, and you've got to live. You know, you've got to get on with it. You're busy. You've got young kids. I it's know. Like, yeah, there's just too many things and too much to do. And life, just having little kids alone is stressful enough, you stressful. know, without trying to deal with everything else. Yeah. So it's, um, you can understand, you can, you can understand that reluctance. And I mean, in New Zealand, we have a real um, do-it-yourself uh couldn't care less. If you can't see it, it's not there. I'm terrible, you know. And I can imagine worrying about lead but then busily getting, fixing up a weatherboard or deciding to paint a windowsill and think, oh, I just haven't got time. I've got to get this done this weekend, you know, just get yeah. on with it. And you're contaminating that soil forever in a day. Yeah. And well, inside Ananda, your house if you're not protecting it. Yeah. Well, Ananda, it's a wake-up call. For those who are interested in finding out more, uh, please go to Leaderware NZ and contact Ananda. It is astonishing what you're doing. It's a little frightening and a little <laughs> hard to handle. I'm pleased I yeah. haven't got little infants any longer because um, you expect them to be safe in the home. Yeah, you expect you you well. You want your home to be safe, and you a lot of people assume it is, and then to find out it might not be is is really confronting yeah mm. Mm. i have a funny story about my little son he is uh he was verbally and physically dyspraxic he's much much better now but he was always falling over and always damaging himself and i literally ended it wherever we are i end up on a first known basis with the accident and emergency with him when he was younger <laughs> and um He'd be on bikes coming down hills. He'd climb up on roofs. He had no fear, but he would always topple. And cuts and head cuts, just everything. He had more things than 50 other kids. But his really damaging accident was inside. He was just running along, and he had jandals on and skidded off them and fell on a coffee against a coffee table. And oh. it was just a wooden table. And it pushed right through his cheek and out the other side. So mm. you could see into his mouth. It opened his whole cheek up and took out a salivary gland and just missed the nerve of the side of his face, which would have rendered him 
paralyzed down that side of the face. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those crazy things that I always think about that you always worry about them on the road or near water or up a, up a tree. And it was inside, just running inside in the living room and a damn coffee table, you know. Wow. Um, and so it's tough. Parenting is so tough in so many ways, um, particularly mm-hmm. once you start figuring out what we need to do to keep them safe and make them the best that they can achieve to be. When you're in a world that seems a bit toxic, not just environmentally, but also, you know, mentally for kids, what they're teaching them and how they're getting on. It's a very, very tough assignment, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I think it it would be easier um, if there was more information available about it. You know, like um, some of the things... um, some of us advocates like me are proposing is, you know, having leaflets in the DIY stores or, you know, having free paint mixers that, you know, have a lead warning on them. Like, have you checked for lead paint or, you know, pamphlets even in the doctor's office or in the U.S. how they screen kids blood routinely, you know, like we do in here in New Zealand, the newborn hearing screening, right? When a baby's born, like pretty much every baby in New Zealand gets screened for if they can hear because obviously there's a lot of downstream issues that could come from that. You know, like, I don't know why we couldn't do the same thing for testing their blood. Or, you know, like, there's a lot of, uh, like, vintage toys. Like, bef- toys that are made before 2010 um, could have lead paint in them. Like, 2010. mainstream toys. 2010. 2010. <laughs> 2010. You know, so not those, like... 1910. N- yeah, we're not talking about 50s toys. Like, even 90s toys could be um, pretty toxic. Oh, um, oh my goodness well here we go make yourself aware make yourself aware of the lead in the products you're buying you go to the you know recycling uh thing and buy kids toys which i do and you get these wonderful things that nana would have had you think oh that'll be so nice to have in the house and you don't know um, yes i know and that's the thing is like you don't want to have to always buy new stuff or like throw away the old stuff like i hate that you know yeah. But I'm not going to give my kids old stuff because I don't want them to be exposed to what could possibly be in it. So, you know, mm. I have I buy the new things and for certain things, you know. And uh, Well, thank you, Ananda Card. Thank you for waking us up to... <laughs> Thanks for talking uh, to me. Well, no, I love... I, well, as the word love it, I appreciate the warning <laughs> and mm. I appreciate the awareness because it's, you know, forewarned is forearmed. And there will be people listening that will be able to make changes in their lives. And, of course, to the extent that you can limit the exposure, it's all good. It's it's the best thing that you can do. And it's another thing just to be mindful of. So I do appreciate it, and I do appreciate your webpage. So that uh, webpage is just Google Lead Aware NZ. And if you have questions, Ananda has very kindly said that she'll take them. Um, wonderful. Thank you for Thank coming you so much. on. Thank you for talking to us and being able to explain it. There was Ananda Card with a, a warning uh, about the extent to which lead is possibly in your home environment and possibly about us. Uh, something to be aware of. Uh, oh, my goodness. 
Isn't it amazing? <laughs> and you think of those cars driving down the road and you're sitting on the road sucking all that lead up. You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, please send us a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at radleycheck.radio. Thank you so much. I've been there for every single step. I've been careful to hold on in case you trip. And every day I get to watch you grow. And every day you teach me things I didn't know Now after all that we've been through I'm so proud of you And I love all the things you want to be You can build and make up anything And how I love it when you sing and dance and I love that you will always hold my hand No matter what you do I'm so proud of you So as you go, please know on your way As you explore and as you learn, as you play I hope it shows how much every day how much it is true That I'm so proud of you It seems like yesterday you had arrived I can't believe how quickly you turned five Now you no longer are my little baby But in my eyes you'll always look that way to me and as I get older too, I'll still be proud of you So as you go, please know on your way As you explore and as you learn, as you play I hope it shows how much every day How much it is true That I'm so proud of you Well, if you keep inside your heart A little space when things get hard Well, I will be there when you need I will never be that far And I will say it like new That I'm so proud of you And I will be here when you come back home I will be your friend if you're alone And though there may be times we disagree Believe that you are always loved so much by me And if you win or if you lose I'm so proud of you So as you go Please know on your way As you explore and as you learn, as you play I hope it shows how much every day How much it is true That I'm so proud of you I'm so proud of you
so proud of you. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at uh, 2057. i got to stop because the other day I said 2053. Goodness knows why. Everyone growled at me. 2057. Inbox, uh, email is inbox at rallycheck.radio. Oh, we've got our special guest. We've got our gardening guru, emeritus professor, the Honourable Wally Richards, QSO, DSM, DCO, everything after his name's PhD. Good morning, <laughs> Wally. My goodness. Uh the, the, the universities will have you can't say all those numbers after my name. No, uh, well, I I can and I did. Hey, I've just come in. I didn't mean to, but I wandered up just to water my beech trees, uh, some of my beech trees that I've planted out, and I ended up just pottering around my garden. And I woke up this morning, as you can sometimes do, a bit miserable about things about the state of the world, state of my life, state of me. And just, you know, beautiful day. Normally you could have woken up feeling brilliant, but I woke up a bit, you know, down. Goodness, I don't know how that happens. Do you know, 10 minutes in the garden and I felt wonderful, Wally. Yep. I absolutely felt in my happy place. You know I have why? Never... No. Because the plants interact with you. And it's interesting. It's it's not something that you can detect. It's kind of like te- telepathy. But um, they read your emotions and they change them for the better. Um, because you're their uh, source of here, right? And they have to look after you because if they don't and you disappear, that means that they're not going to get the water when they are dry and they're not going to get uh, the food when they're hungry, etc., etc. And so um, they're very concerned about your welfare. And this is Dinkum. Uh, I'm not well, pulling, I believe pulling your you. leg. Yeah. I believe you. I could not, I could not, I could not believe the change in my attitude literally within 10 minutes and ended up pottering away there for 45 minutes. And I felt so good. I felt like a young man that had, you know, gone for a 10 K hard run. I just felt it. I had endorphins flying around my body. I was whistling. I was singing in my heart and my plants looked happy. I was happy. And I thought this is the most wonderful thing in the world. It's very therapeutic, that's for sure. Yep, yep. And, and, and I've learnt I've learnt not to do big long spans at the garden, but to do little bits like every day, because then you get the benefit, that good feeling, and you also get um you don't get sick of it. You know, if I go and do a whole day in the garden, I do get sick of it. But I find if I do a little bit my dad used to do, he had a beautiful vegetable garden and my mother had a beautiful flower garden and they'd do something in it every day except I guess in winter but they didn't spend a day in the garden and right that's what now, I to do. the key to that is 
gardening should never be a chore. If it mm. is a chore, you're you're in the wrong place and you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Because once it becomes, um, oh my God, I've got to go out and weed the bloody garden and I've got to do this and mow mm. the lawns and so forth, uh, it, it's a chore. Mm. You better to hire somebody to go and do those bits, you know, mm. so that you um, have the pleasure. Even mowing the lawn is a pleasure. Because mm. at the end of the time they finish mowing, you look at the lawn and go, wow, that looks much better. And, and you feel good. You're elite, uh, alive. And the grass loves to be cut. Yes. <laughs> it's one of the few plants in the world that I know of that loves to be cut because it's grown up with the aspect of uh, animals browsing it. Because most, um, well, not all animals, not the carnivorous ones, of course, or whatever they are, um, but all your stock plants, um, like cows, sheep, et cetera, et cetera, eat grass, right? And the mm. grass loves it because mm. um, every time they cut the grass, it makes the grass grow and it increases the number of leaves that it produces because it's been cut. It's like cutting the end off a branch will produce a lot mm. more branches on the bit mm. that hasn't been cut off, right? Same principle. And, uh, yeah. I had I had a friend visit who's very knowledgeable and very emphatic. And he said, Rodney, you're making a mistake. Beech trees will never grow out here. You shouldn't have gone and got those 500 little beech trees and raised them in your nursery. And I got very upset. So I thought I'd do an experiment. And a month ago, I took five beech trees from my nursery, and they're in their little PB18 pots. Mm. And I carefully, I knew not to disturb their roots. I dug a nice hole. I put year-old horse manure around them, a bit of straw, put them in. On two of them, I wrapped wire, chicken wire around and a, um, a um, windbreak, like to really protect them. And on three, I just had those little green protectors so the rabbits wouldn't eat them. And then I put two strong stakes, one each side of them, and put a ribbon between the two, told them up. I've carefully kept the water, and the water, I notice the manure holds the water good. They're in sort of clay places, these five trees. They are doing so well, Wally. Excellent. So well. And listeners, I don't get paid for any of this with Wally. Wally comes on on his own free will when we interview him. He's not an advertisement. That magic botanic liquid I put on those two tall beech trees that I was going to throw in my burn pile they are growing like nothing else yeah 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 man so i've ordered a whole lot more botanic lag, li liquid i think you're a five liter container and i'm going to do yes, all my so you've got five liters coming yeah and uh thank you i got free posted so i appreciate that and um i'm gonna spray all my beech trees um with a little bit because clearly it just, I could not believe the turnaround in those beech trees, Wally. 
right? Yep, yep. It makes a world of difference. So thank you for that. Now, before we get down to business, you've got an announcement to make. Yes. On um, Sunday, I after I've written a new book, put it that way, and it's called Gardening with Wally Richards. It's a composite of a lot of the articles I've written over many years, and particularly more recent ones, dealing with problems that people have got, such as guava moss and army moss and um, garlic rust and community leaf and stone fruit. Yeah, all, all the bits and pieces and a particular emphasis on gardening and health because gardening and health go hand in hand and growing your own healthy food um, naturally in the garden is going to make the world a difference to your health and your family's health by miles. So strong emphasis there. Anyway, 200-page book. Got it finished, took it to the printers, and I said to the printers, um, what's the chance of getting this um, uh, printed uh, by early December? And they said, oh, I don't know how many copies you want. And I said, well, what's the problem? And they said, well, the binders, because the binders are going to be doing school books and so forth in December, and it's a matter of getting it through them. And I said, well, what say we just do a small printing of, say, 500 copies? And they said, yeah, that would be perfect. And they gave me an ETA for the 8th of December. I go and pick up the books from the public uh, printers, and, um, and I get 500 copies. So in the weekend, I thought, right, okay, when I write my article, I'll write about the book and say, because people might like to buy one for themselves or somebody else, family member, for Christmas. And um, so I put that out with my weekly article, and lo and behold, I have had so many. I've, I've sold over 100 books in basically 24 hours. My goodness. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and, of course, the books are not going to be sent out till after the um, 8th of December. So the following week, we'll be posting out um, untold books because the orders just keep coming in. Um, every time I look at my email, I've got another order. My goodness. But the beauty of it is to being the um, publisher and the author and I can actually autograph every book. And not only that, mm. I can put in, say, for instance, you want to give it to your wife for Christmas. And I can, um, when I talk to you on the phone and take the details and get the credit card numbers, etc., I say, okay, who's the book for? Oh, it's for Mary. That's my wife. Okay. So I'll uh, put a little note in there. So happy gardening, Mary, or uh, happy Christmas, Mary, uh, 2023, and sign it. Right. So well, it, it becomes very personal then. Can I make my order on the phone now? Oh, uh, <laughs> do it on the website, please. <laughs> so I get all the details because. We're, oh, we're well, going to take gonna about have, 10 minutes of your of listeners' time getting you all your have, personal details you about your have, credit card and God you knows should, what. You should have all my details by now. Now, 
when I read, when I open it up, I do get a bit of a shock because you've got out here what the chapter headings are, and they start off a bit negative because I never believe in pests. Uh, salad, tomato salad, potato salad, garlic rusk, moths, codlin, guava, army worm, curdy leaf disease, and stone fruit. And I'm thinking, oh, that sounds a bit on the negative side to start with. And then it gets on to raised gardens, uh, pollination, gardening with carbon. And I think this is more me, magic in the garden, germinating seeds, healthy vegetables, iron versus copper, growing food in containers. And I think now nah, this is the good stuff. Pests. Oh, I'm scared of pests. I don't want any in my garden, Molly. And But I, I imagine that it's going to happen, right? Can't mm. be avoided. Well, those topics like um, army worm, grava moth, etc., they are devastating gardens, particularly uh, in Auckland, up north. Um, you really? are probably fortunate that you're not seeing those particular problems of any consequence uh, yet, but they will come um, because with warming and so forth and movement of um, materials from one place to another, the pests come along. It's it's like quite often um, when you go through a garden centre or somewhere and you buy some seedlings, there's already pests on the seedlings because they haven't been protected, they haven't been sprayed. You mm. take them home. If you don't look for the eggs or whatever that are on the uh, seedlings, you plant them in the garden and then you wonder where the caterpillars came from. They came out of the eggs that you bought. You bought the eggs. You brought them home. In fact, most problems you bring into your garden from outside. Fascinating. So if you ever buy seedlings, have a look under the leaf? Yeah. Check them for the um, eggs or uh, bugs or anything like that. And mm. um, if you spot them, squash them uh, and then plant out. And then they're going to be free until um, – butterflies or something comes along. Now, here's an interesting thing. We're already just about into December, and I haven't seen a white butterfly this year as yet. And I've got cabbages and brassicas all over the place. No, no white butterflies. I'm, I'm quite amazed because mm -hmm. it's kind of been warm enough for them to come out, but they haven't happened yet. It'd be interesting to hear from listeners. Um if they have had, send us, drop us a note if you've seen a white butterfly, 2057 text or email inbox at rallycheck.radio. Now, we are going to buy your book, listeners, and I'm going to buy your book. But I want to we preview because you say you've got a Ford and then you've got on page 10 starting a chapter called My Journey. My Journey, yes. Tell me, what's your journey? Okay. Um, people often in conversation over the phone and so forth, they may say to me, um, what's your qualifications? You know, you've been to Massey, you've been done courses. I said, no, my qualifications is in nature. Um, and at the back of the book, I've actually extended this out and tell a little story, which I'm not going to tell you what it is, and you can read it for yourself. It's quite personal. but. It's why I believe I am doing what I'm doing. And it comes from 
back when I was about 20 years old. Like, I've always been an avid gardener. I love gardening, right? I, I At three years old, I had my own little garden and I had my wheelbarrow and my little spade and I'd go out. What and, year was that, Wally? Oh, that was um, around about 76 years ago. So you're 79? So, yeah. So, oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, I grew up in the garden um, with chickens. We had chickens and so forth. We, my early childhood was wonderful. Um, we had an old house in Palmerston North, which no longer exists, um, and it was a quarter-acre section, fruit trees, chickens, big veggie garden, um, and my mum was an avid gardener. And, of course, they had gone through depressions, et cetera, et cetera, and bottling, preserving, you know, all those wonderful things that we used to do way back mm. then. We were mm. self-sufficient. The only thing we had to go out to buy was sugar and flour, everything mm. else we had, right? Um, and it was magic. Um, and, and it amazes me, back then, for a special treat at Christmas time or birthday, mum would actually sacrifice one of her pullets and have roast chicken. Now, roast that chicken. was luxury. luxury. That was, like, fantastic to have a chicken to eat, right? And that wishbone, you know, dry it out yes. and break the wishbone, you know. Nowadays, KFC, et cetera, et cetera, chicken's a dime a dozen. Everybody's. Yeah, my kids, my kids don't believe that in our centre sack you'd get an orange and a banana. Yes, yes. And you'd think you're made because you had an orange and a banana. They they just have oranges and bananas in a bowl every day of their life. I, I'll tell you a quick little story. A friend of mine who's now passed on, Scottish woman, when she grew up in Scotland, at Christmas time she was given an orange for Christmas. And she said it was the most wonderful thing. She she would hold it, she would smell it. It was a long time before she got around to eating it. But it's it was such a treat to have such an orange. Treat. And that would have been once again 70 odd years ago. Mm. Mm. It's um and of course, our parents' generation, when they thought we were living in luxury. Yes. Yeah. Compared to how they grew up with horses and uh, walking everywhere, um, no sign of electricity or a motor car. Um, and here we were having those in a rudimentary form. Um, how did you like gardening at three? What happened when you were 20? Okay, well, as it transpired, uh, I was in uh, the PNC. And I was a telephone technician. And, of course, in those days, promotion, you went to different places to get a promotion uh, and go up the ladder. Uh, my first um, place was Tikawiti, um, that I was there for a number of years. And I rented a place. And the first thing, wherever I went, and then I was into Hamilton, and renting a place there until I purchased a house. Um, everywhere I went, I would be digging up the back lawn and putting it in the garden, for sure. And I, I, I've <laughs> always 
I, I can't live without a veggie garden. Um, and, and sometimes it's not even like I just have the pleasure of growing the vegetables and giving them away. Um, and, of course, we do eat a certain amount yeah, ourselves, yeah. and they taste so good. And that's the key to mm. the whole thing. If they taste good without having to put garnishes on, etc., then they really got good nutritional value. If they are from mm. the supermarket and you uh, eat them and they're tasteless, why? Because they're growing too fast, too quick, and they are unfortunately full of chemicals. Mm. You still haven't told me what happened. Sorry. What happened when you were 20 that got you into full-time gardening? Well, I'd been gardening right through. I never stopped. Yes. Uh, I remember in Palmerston when we, mum had to sell up the house, this beautiful old house we had, and we moved into a, a little house in what I would have termed a slum area of Palmerston North. It's all we could afford. And it was a, a like the houses today. It was a little house uh, on a very small section. And there was virtually no much room out the back for a small garden. That was it. So being members of the church in those days, Methodist Church, which across the road from us, um, one of the church members um, heard that um, I was being deprived of having a garden. So he offered some of his um, garden for me to be able to go to his place and have a garden at his place and grow some veggies, in which I'd duly get on my bike and, and <laughs> go about two miles to his place and use his tools and so forth and um, and plant some seeds, seedlings and so forth and had a garden there. So it's just been part of my nature, gardening. And when did you become, when did it become your business? Oh, um, that was kind of a hobby that got out of hand. What happened was um, I was growing um, like veggies and so forth, but I, I also had an interest in carnivorous plants. I had an interest in uh, house plants, etc., herbs. And so the place I was living in Palmer's North, I built a um, plastic glass house right? and made it out of 50 by 50, um, tantalized timber and got uh, plastic sheeting uh, film and put that over and I was growing plants and I was uh, propagating etc and then as a result of that I had all these plants so what do you do with them I went over to, um, over the back of me was a garage so I went and saw a chap that owned it who was quite friendly with me anyway. And I said, do you mind if I put some plants on your forecourt and sell them? I said, well, sell them for a dollar each and um, you can have 50 cents, I'll have 50 cents. He said, nah, go for it. And I did. From there, I actually opened a little plant shop in a place called Square Edge. Um, Square Edge um, was the old uh, council building which they'd given over um, for small shop owners type of thing to um, have a little business mm. uh, there. And so I opened a plant shop. And at the time, I was still, um, I was actually a travelling um, salesman then. 
which was quite an advantage. I used to go over to Napier and I'd go to Anderson's um, big nursery complex there and I would pick up a, a carload of um, houseplants and take them back to the shop. Um, I had, I became friendly with a nurseryman um, whose name was um, Bob Wall and he was growing a lot of seedlings for um, commercial growers, uh, cabbages, et cetera, et cetera, brassicas. And he'd grow them in, in uh, trays of 80 plants and plug trays, right? And I thought, this is a great idea. So I got some plug trays off him and put them out in my little shop. Now, the, the interest that caused with the older gardeners, because older gardeners, back in, and we're going back, I was in my 20s, so 50 years ago, they hated buying a punnet of plants because mm. they only wanted two or three to plant, mm. and they'd have 20 or 30 plants, and they hated waste. Mm. And so when they could come to my shop and they could buy one cabbage, one broccoli, one cauliflower, and then come back a, a week or two later and buy another one of each, they mm. loved it. And so, you know, for 20 cents a plant, uh, they were happy as Larry. And uh, so the shop became quite popular. I actually opened another shop. In fact, I had three little plant shops in Palmerston at one stage. And then I was able to um, find a glasshouse complex in Vogel Street. And it was a big glasshouse complex, which the original China, Chinaman had grown tomatoes in and he grew the best tomatoes in New Zealand and he was famous for it in actual fact. Um, anyway, he had stopped long ago, retired from that and some guys from the army had bought the land with the glasshouse on and they were trying to grow tomatoes very unsuccessfully because most of the time was over a flag and a beer rather than growing the tomatoes. So um, <laughs> anyway, I ended up purchasing that. And I also, in the front of the place, was three shops. One was a four square, one was a veggie shop, and one was, I think it was a bookshop, in actual fact, going back. And the people that owned the veggie shop, um, they put their lease up for sale, and I bought the lease. I ended up buying the whole building in the end. So I had a uh, then a garden centre mm. complex, and that worked out um, quite well. Um, we had this big glasshouse complex behind where I could grow a lot of shrubs and plants and seedlings. And once again, we, we were doing the what we call uh, flats. A flat is a wooden uh, box that's got 80 plants in, right? And to get them out, you, you actually lift them out with a little um, garden fork. And so that's how we sold. So people would come in and they'd say, oh, I want two of those, five of those, or whatever. We put them actually in shoe boxes. So um, I can remember my mother doing that. I can remember my mother now buying plants, obviously not in Palmerston North, and having them wrapped in newspaper and put into a shoebox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how we used to do it. Um, it's an old-fashioned way of doing things. 
but people liked it. They could buy a whole tray and bring mm. the tray back. Um, and we were, then I purchased um, another glasshouse complex in Ashurst, which had been used in the past for growing, I presume, tomatoes. And it was a big glasshouse complex. And then I started growing shrubs. Um, and I got onto a plant propagation place where you could buy little um, seedlings. Well, they weren't seedlings. They were, they were little um, small shrubs in, in a little um, pot, right? And what we called grow tubes. And you buy a, like 50 of these things and you put them into PB bags, uh, say PB3s. Had a whole automatic irrigation system there in Glasshouse. And of course, these shrubs would grow very quickly. And the beauty of it too was they were often new varieties that mm. weren't out on the market um, or were only just coming into the market. So we had the latest from overseas or whatever selling through the garden set for about $5 a plant, making a lot of money at $5 a plant where that was the wholesale price, basically, because other garden centers would be selling the same thing for $10 a plant. Wow. Yeah. So we cut out the middle man mm. sort of thing by doing it itself. And that's how things used to be years ago in New Zealand. You had a nurseryman, which I became a nurseryman. You know, like I was a telephone technician. I was an um, insurance agent. I was a salesman for an electrical company in Palmerston, um, and then I became a nurseryman. And I learned a lot growing stuff um, as such, and the names of them, how to grow them, and so forth. And one of the aspects is, too, that I have a sort of connection with nature. And I even notice here, if a plant, my partner's got lots of house plants, miles of them, um, if a plant is getting a bit dry, for some reason my attention is attracted to that plant and goes, oh, you're a bit dry. I'll go and give you some water. So it communicates with me. It calls me over somehow, mm. right? And um, Two questions. I, two, que two, two questions, Wally. This learning fascinates me because when I look back, I did a whole lot of jobs. But I just did the job that was ascribed to me. And I never learned about the industry that I was in. You know, it was just I did my job and, and kept my sort of head down. It was only much, much later in my life where I'd get working somewhere. And I usually because I thought this is I'm going to be doing this for a while. And I'd take the trouble to learn how everyone fitted into the business and what everyone was doing and how it all worked. But I was in my 30s when I got to that stage of learning. And I look back on it and think, oh, so I, I worked in some very interesting places where I never took the trouble. I guess I was too shy to ask questions of people that were working around me, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's yeah. a funny thing. I was just a boy there working away, and I thought I never asked that old guy how it all fitted together. I just did my job and kept my head down. And and then you can see other people go into a, a job like you, 
and you learn and you can learn such a lot and you realize when you're older you're more than happy to help anyone that's got a question aren't you yeah yeah for sure you get a kick out of it and I'm trying to impress upon my kids that you know there's such a lot to learn. Everything's an opportunity to learn, and I I never I never took it. I think I was too shy to ask. I just wanted to get on and do my job and be appreciated for doing my little bit, and too scared. To, I guess you don't have the confidence as a young person to ask others, "How? What are you doing over there? How does that work?" You know. Second question. That was more of a statement as it happened. Do you think there's such a thing as green fingers? Um, yes and no. Um, people that seem to be successful in their guardian endeavours, like we say they've got green fingers. I believe it's really their mental attitude to the gardening, and hence the plants teach them. So they know intuitively what to do and so forth. Um, once you get into the garden, you get past the uh, flurry of all the problems in your head and all those thoughts of whatever, and they dissipate, and you are there and you're receptive at that point. At that point, when you become receptive, the plants talk to you. In, in such a way that you intuitively learn um, what to do. You see the insects on the plant. Okay, we've got to fix that because they're sucking goodness out of the plant and the plant's not very happy. Okay, so we um, do whatever's necessary to eradicate that problem from the plant. The plant's happy then because, you know, it's like you having a whole lot of... Um, Bed bugs or uh, mosquitoes mm. or something sucking goodness out of your body. The same thing is applying to the plant. It's not very happy about the whole deal. Um, so you get rid of the problem and the plant's much more happier and uh, is very thankful to you for fixing the problem. Because plants, if they're grown naturally, they will um, produce chemicals and so forth which will deter those insect pests. And, of course, plants communicate with each other, and, and this is a mm. scientifically known fact. Like, if you've mm. got a forest of a particular tree and the ones on the edge of the forest uh, get attacked by either insects or something or disease, they will relay a message off to all the other trees to say, hey, you guys, I'm getting attacked. My God, it's, um, it, it's aphids this time. And they say, oh, well, good, okay. So we'll generate our anti-aphid material. Isn't that great? <laughs> and, and how they communicate is underground through the microcilian fungi that connects all the roots. So they have not the internet, they have the undernet. Right? <laughs> yes. And they communicate through that medium. And so all the trees in the forest uh, become aware there's a problem. They get ready. And because they are in nature, they are able to do so. Now, plants, veggie plants and so forth in the commercial garden have got no ability to do that. First of all, microcilium fungi has been killed by the chemicals. 
So there's no communication between each another. Thus, stand alone, there are poor individual plants being forced to grow faster than they should do, and you end up with what you get in the supermarket. That microcilium fungi does. Do you have to inoculate your garden to have that, or is it just enough to stay away from uh, chemicals? Um, it's naturally in the soil, and okay. If you don't, so if you get a good soil, if you get a good soil with manure and earthworms, you're there. Yeah, and then you can encourage it to grow by using a product we have called Microsin, um, and that is food for the soil life and the microcillium fungi in the soil. There's other fungis like Trichoderma, which are very effective in protecting plants, roots from diseases, etc. Um, there's a whole world out there that when allowed to be... Now, here's an interesting one. Some plants are very, very difficult to grow and establish, right? And the easy way to do it is you go and find a mature specimen of that plant growing somewhere, and you take some soil from the root area of that plant, and you take that home, and you plant the little baby plant of that with that soil, which has got the right microcillian fungi, et cetera, mm. et cetera, and that plant mm. will thrive and grow. So if you ever strike a plant that's hard to establish, sometimes clematis is one of those. Um, well, I'm going to do that with my beech trees because they rely a lot on a micro fungus. And I thought I, I actually was going to get the litter for when I had them in the pots, but I'm actually thinking I'll do that now that I'm planting them out. And um, that's a great tip. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so you go and get a mature specimen somewhere, find them, take some sort. You don't need much. No, because you're just inoculating them, right? And they take Yeah, off. you're introducing the right thing, and then you encourage that by not a watering it with chlorinated water, not mm -hmm. using herbicides, and not using mm -hmm. chemical um, rescue sprays, whether they be fungicides or insecticides. Just use natural things. And so, Wally, since in your 20s you have been, uh, you've turned your hobby into a business and yes. you have continued to learn. You're, I have an observation to make because I resented gardening. I just found it a fag. And I'd stick a seed in the ground, cover it, pour some water on it, forget about it, and get annoyed when it didn't grow. And my wife would always grow a few tomatoes or something. And then, because of you, I've got into gardening. And I'm having great success. And better than my wife. Just don't say that out loud, right? Um, and I look at my wife's efforts and I'm a bit dismissive. Um, but what it is, is I've got, interested and fascinated by it through you and i actually feel like you say in tune with my plants they have become like little babies to me i do feel it and if one of my one of my little potato plants 
um, didn't look very happy. And I was actually upset. And uh, it took some water and some MBO and it perked up because I didn't know whether it would be a pest or whatever, but it perked up and I felt so much the better. But I'm in tune and enjoying my plants and that has made me have green fingers. And I do feel as though there is some communication because I can now spot very quickly the plants that need attention. I never could. Yeah. Because I sort of, I I was thinking about other things. Right. Very interesting. And and, um, when I'm in my garden now, I'm very conscious um, of my plants. And I often listen to the, podcasts or to RCR when I'm in the garden I don't now because I sort of feel as though I'm in with the plants I mm. don't want to be distracted the, it's a the, very interesting feeling the only other aspect which I don't use but I do know it's very good is that you have some nice light classical music playing and the plants thrive on that it's the vibrations yes. that they love isn't but, that funny um, so, of course, you've got the situation, too, between humans. Like, say, for instance, you and your wife are sitting down there watching TV at night and you'll both say at the same time, let's have a cup of tea. Now, yeah. one mind generated the thought, the other mind picked the thought up, both said it at the same time. Telepathic, right? We are yeah. telepathic people and plants are telepathic and we communicate with each other but we don't kind of, it's not like you get a message in your head. It's just a feeling. And then you say it. Okay. Tell us about lawn, because your latest email had a section on the lawn. Tell us about lawn and its importance and how to look after it. And lawn is actually quite hard. It's quite hard to establish a lawn, isn't it? Yes and no. Um, First of all, Years ago, um, when I was in Palmerston North, uh, I used to be asked to go and judge gardeners um, for local, like fielding, for instance. They, they had their garden competition and people would enter and somebody like me or other people would go around, have a look at their gardens and so forth. Now, the interesting thing is I, I used to see some beautiful gardens lovely flowers, plants, all, etc., but a scruffy lawn, and they got marked down. Then I'd go to another place, and the lawn was fine. It was really good-looking lawn, right? The gardens were, oh, not bad, but they were so much better because it had a good lawn. And the lawn is actually, as a picture frame is through a picture, right? Mm. And that's the key to the whole thing. You have a nice picture, you have a nice picture frame, the whole thing is good. You have a scruffy picture with a beautiful frame, doesn't look too bad, or vice versa, you have a lovely picture with a stupid-looking scruffy frame and it doesn't do anything for the picture. Right. So most important. Lawns, you can be very fastidious about lawns, and some people are. I, I used to know a chap in Hamilton when I was there working, and he worked with me um, in the PNC, and he would actually cut his lawn with a pair of scissors. 
Every day on hands and knees, cutting with a pair of scissors, and any little weed that happened to be there had been pricking out and so forth out of his lawn. And he had a lawn like a bowling green. It was perfect, 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 perfect. The key to a lawn is to have a very dense lawn, right? So you're overseeding. So in the autumn, particularly is a good time to do it, and it can be done again in the spring, you have a thing called scarifying. Now, scarifying is when you run either a scarifying rake, which is a sharp prong rake, through the lawn, which scrapes up all the debris that is laying on the surface of the soil, right? If Mm -hmm. you allow that debris to um, get bigger and bigger, when you walk on your lawn, it's like walking on a spongy carpet. It's spongy. You can feel it, right? And that means there's a lot of um, rubbish, creepers and so forth, sitting on the soil, and that is bad for the grass. And it really is because when it rains, the debris collects the moisture, right? And it doesn't allow it to penetrate down so well into the soil. So the grass's roots come back up into the uh, debris and because that's where the water is. So it's getting that water. But when it dries out, of course, the grass is weak because the mm. roots have been mm. in that debris mm. which is dry and so the grass is poorly. Um, you can get a machine, which is a scarifier, and you run that through your lawn. like a, It's like a lawnmower, and it picks up untolds. The easy way to dethatch your lawn is to use a product we have called Thatch Buster. Now, Thatch Buster is a little bit like microcin, except it's stronger, and it's food to feed the microbes, which will break down the thatch. Mm. Right? And the debris is called thatch, right? So you apply this to your lawn and you keep it a little bit moist with non-chlorinated water, of course, and within a month, an inch of thatch will go, be eaten up by what's that, and converted to food for the grasses. Then you over-sow. So you've got your lawn, you get some good lawn seed, and you broadcast that over your uh, lawn, when the soil is a bit on the moist side, and then you lightly water to wash it off the grass down into the uh, soil. And then um, if you've got a roller, you roll it, you press it into the soil, over the grass. That then will germinate and you'll get a thicker lawn. Now, once you've got a thick lawn, it means that weed seeds are very difficult to establish. So your Mm. lawn becomes virtually weed-free, right? Cutting of the lawn. You never cut more than one-third of the end of the grass at any one time. So if your grass is very tall, you have to do a few cuts to get it down low. Reason being is every time you cut the blades of grass, it will create more blades of grass, right? So by just taking the top off, one third, and then a few days later, another third, until you get it down to a lawn, which is probably, where's my little ruler, which I can't find, can I? 
So the height of your lawn should probably be no less than about 50 millimetres tall. Right? It's two inches. Right? So Two inches, right? Uh, 50 millimetres, yeah. Yeah, or, two or inches. Or five centimetres. Yeah. Right? That's even tall. Even 60 or 70 is a nice lawn. And if you're taking it down to like 20 millimetres, you're scalping your lawn. You're, you're, you're weakening the grass. You're making a poor lawn. Feeding a lawn, you can just, go but and, Just before we rush on, a question for you, Wally. Um, there's all these different seed varieties out there. If in autumn or spring you dethatch your lawn, you get it moist and you spread seed in there and then uh, roll it and wet it again, do you have to worry that you're getting the same grass that you originally had, same seed, or can you put a different – you don't know. You just got grass and you think, oh, I need to buy some seed. Did, does it have to be the same seed? Like you've got fescue, rye and – I don't uh, know. What I've what's got? Um, yeah. Well – the the aspect is different types of seed will do better in some things than others. Like there's uh, seeds which are more ideal for shady areas, sunny areas, uh, dry areas, etc. Um, so depending upon where it's going to be, like under a tree, it's very hard for anything to grow underneath a tree because the tree robs everything. So you've got to get a um, a lawn seed that can compete with the tree in that shaded, barren area because the tree's robbed all the goodness. Um, so, and it depends. Most lawn seed is a mix of fescue and um, what's the name uh, rye. A rye is a, is a tough. Tougher grass. Okay. A fescue is a weaker grass, but a nice grass, right? And I, I'm just trying to think of the name of the other one which they add into the formula. Um, <clears throat> and once again, it's your own preference to what you want that lawn to look like. So if you go um, along, if you go along and you explain, you know, your site in terms of shade, moisture, and and where you are, a seed will be recommended and or seeds and then you choose and then when you come to add that seed and i hadn't appreciated this that you can dethatch put more lawn seed into an existing lawn and thicken it up yep because it's a thick luxuriant luxuriant lawn that looks beautiful right mm, yeah it does and to get good seed ideally you go to a place like Evans Turf, who supply the seed to uh, greenkeepers, who mm. for golf courses, cricket pitches, uh, et cetera, et cetera, those guys, they want the best of seed. The problem arises that lawn seed is only really good for one year. After one year, the germination rate falls off very quickly. Right, so a lot of seed that is not sold happens to be um, sold cheaply 
to somebody else who is producing lawn seed, which we won't name any people, um, which you might buy in a garden shop, um, which has got a lower germination rate and is now inferior seed. In fact, I remember one time um, consumer did a, a, a check, this is some years ago, on lawn seeds, and they got all the varieties of lawn seeds from the various companies that supply lawn seeds to garden centres. And in one packet, they found there was no lawn seeds. There was only weed seeds. And that's a fair thinking. There was no lawn seed in the bloody packet. My God. Well, I tried to buy lawn seed from Evans on their webpage and gave up. And I was not kidding around. I had a big area to sow, and I went to PG Wrightson's. And um, so far, it's germinating. I felt I should have spoken to you more, but I don't know how you go getting it on the Evans webpage because they weren't helpful. Um, I could not figure it out, Wally. Um, so you need to keep researching for us how to get good seed. If you're sowing a lawn, too late for me now because I just did it, but if you're sowing a lawn fresh, so you've got a bare patch and you want to get a nice lawn down, you got it nice and level. you got a nice soil. How do you do it? Okay. Um, well, if you've prepared the ground. Now, here, here's a, a most important thing which a lot of people don't realise. You prepare the soil, right? It's all nice and flat. It's ready to plant the seed, and they plant the seed. Wrong. Worst time that you could do it. You don't plant the seed. You treat it as if you had planted the seed. Because in that soil will be a whole lot of weed seeds and if you throw your lawn seed out over the bare area it will germinate along with the weeds that germinate that are already there so what you do you treat it as if you'd sown the lawn seed you will keep it moist get the weed seeds to germinate and once they've germinate you can cut them off and kill them and you spray them with something a herbicide if you want to, whatever. Best not to because it will affect the grass later. And then once you've done that and waited for maybe a month, keeping it moist, getting the weed seeds to germinate, then when you sow your seed, you're going to have a clean slate. It's going to be just your lawn seed germinating, no weeds. And if, if you don't do that, and the weeds come up with your grass seed, you cannot, other than get down on hands and knees and prick them out, you can't use a herbicide like uh, Turf Fix or anything because it will affect the young grass. The grass has to mature and then it will handle a herbicide without unduly affecting it. Um, And then you can, uh, after six months, they say, so most important, um, you germinate the weeds and then you sow your grass. And when you sow your grass, you spread it on the soil, then what? Okay. Um, you can lightly rake to work it into the soil a bit. Your biggest problem, of course, is at that point of time, birds go, oh, my goodness, look at all that seed down there. Let's get in and have a feed. I right. had that. I had that. I know right. what that feels like. I don't know where those bloody birds came from. Uh, I had birds. I reckon they came from the North Island down deep my sea. Right. Now, 
in actual fact, if you think about it, the worst time to sow seed is during the day when the birds are watching because they're going, oh, look at that. He's putting a whole lot of food out for us. Oh, good, 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 good. Right? So <laughs> you do it after they go to sleep so they don't mm. see you do it. Right? It's the same with animals. You, if you've got a dog, you never garden in front of your dog because you'll come behind and, and he'll garden too and rip up all the things you've done if he's that type of dog. Right. So um, after I've gone to sleep at night, you go out and sow your lawn. Now, they're not going to see you do it, and they're not going to know straight away that there's lawn seed there. Now, to get around the problems of birds, you can put a cover over until the lawn uh, seed germinate or whatever. You use a bird netting. Bit of a hassle. Instead, go down and buy some of those cheap $1 loaves of bread from the supermarket. You're sowing your lawn in the front, right? Put the bread out at the back. So the birds are going to get a big feed of bread, you know, and that fresh bread, of course, fills their tummies up fairly quickly because it's all got yeast active, right? And they'll be so full they can't eat your grass seed. That's a great idea. Yeah. And you can get a you can get one of those two liter bottles of um, empty Coke bottles and fill it with water and put in the lawn. Oh, for dogs! I've, so the uh, dogs. So, uh, oh, it's um, dogs. <laughs> I was teasing you because we covered that off. That was for dogs, not birds. Oh, that's a great idea. And then, um, and it makes a difference if the birds don't see you. Those pesky things are watching you. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, because it's their um, backyard, it's their environment, um, even though they do move around a, a fair bit. But um, it, I, I know it's even like my chickens. They're very observant. If you put something in their um, area which they've got free-ranging in, they'll come over and inspect it. You know, after you've gone, they'll go over and check it out and have a wee look. What's this thing for? Why Why? why is it here? You know, um, animals are very observant, more observant most, than most I people. I suppose their lives depend on it, don't they? They didn't They didn't yeah. survive by not noticing food arriving. Um, for new listeners, you should explain non-chlorinated water for the lawn and garden, Wally. And well, a quick, quick, quick explanation. Yeah, all, all the councils have put chlorine in their water. Um, that chlorine is designed to kill microbes, bacteria, so that you don't get a tummy bug. And, of course, when you use it in your garden, you're going to kill the vital microbes in the soil and the microcilium fungi because that's what it's supposed to do. So you very simply go to my website and you get yourself a housing and filter um, which you can snap on your tap and put your hose onto that. Tim, uh, micron carbon bonded filter removes the chlorine. And so your water is just about as good as rainwater then. And it's also very good to drink. Um, and then when you water your garden, you're not putting chlorine in to kill things. Mm, and good. the simple thing to understand this is if you have a nice wet spring, everything comes away in the garden really great. It looks good. 
then as it dries out, you get the hose out, you start watering with chlorinated water, black spot, rust, and things go backwards. And then if you get a week of good rain, everything comes back to life again. And that is the key, that these things, microbes, etc., they can have three or four generations in 24 hours. So they can re-establish very yes. quickly yes. if they're allowed to. Yes. And um, once they're established, your plants will thrive. My goodness. Now, um, Wally, a thing I hadn't heard about hitherto with you or from you and is in your latest email, a product, Perk, you're great with your names, Perfection. Mm. What is that? Okay. Um, the reason it's called perfection is because the commercial name of the product is called Perk, P-E-R-K, right? Mm. I didn't want to use that because what is Perk? So I made it uh, like perfection, but Perkfection, right? Mm. And on the label it says Perkfection for Roses. Why does it say perfection for roses? I learned a little secret many years ago from a garden centre owner. He said, if anything, any product has got full roses on it, we sell lots of it. I said, really? And he said, yeah, because so many people like roses. In fact, roses is the most grown plant in New Zealand. I did not. I wouldn't have believed that. Yeah. Lots of people have roses. Some people have hundreds of bloody roses, you know, paddocks full of them, right? But a lot of people will have one or two rose plants anyway, and and roses are a gift. Um, people, like, have a baby, give them a rose or give mm. them a fruit tree. Um, mm. it, it's something that could be looked at for years and years to come as, oh, that was when uh, John got born. Right, mm. as that grows and it's called Johnny's Delight or something. You try and get a name yes. <laughs> similar to uh, whatever the event is. Um, the next most popular plant grown in New Zealand is tomatoes. So roses first, tomatoes second. Well, and I'm big. My... I've I've gone big on tomatoes in my garden. I'm big on tomatoes. In my original book, those are the two things I wrote about first. The first chapters were roses and then tomatoes. You know your market. Yeah. Um, so uh, where were we? Where we're were talking we? about perfection for roses. Oh, yes. Okay. So that's why I called it for roses, right? It's actually not a fungicide, but originally the original product was registered and had a different name, and it was used as a fungicide on kiwi fruit. Right, but because it's got an NPK rating, it can be sold as a um, fertilizer, and fertilizers don't have to be registered. So, the company that owns um, uh, Perk, they decided to to call it Perk and sell it because it was so much cheaper. Because you don't have the pay the government anything to sell it, right? Yeah. What it is. It stimulates the immune system of the plant and helps it overcome diseases or helps it prevent diseases, right? So in a sense, it's not a fungicide, 
but it acts like a fungicide. It builds up the health of the plant, right? It's particularly good for wet weather diseases such as Phytophthora, Botrytis, etc., root rots, um, and it can be used into the soil as a drench, but it's best used um, as a foliar spray over the foliage. It, it's uh, systemic. It goes through the whole plant very quickly, so you spray the foliage, it goes down to the roots, helps the roots regenerate if they've been rotting as a too wet a feet. And here's the point too. A lot of people use mulches in their garden, right? And mulches are magic in the hot, dry summer to retain moisture in the soil, right? But once we get into autumn and we start to get rain, those mulches hold too much water in the soil. And as a result of that, people lose plants in the winter because the roots rot, because the soil can't breathe. The mulch has held too much water. So most important, any mulches around particularly citrus trees or any plants that don't like wet feet, you must remove in the autumn and put back uh, late spring going into summer when they are an advantage. Bit of a chore, but uh, it means your plants will survive. So perfection isn't just for roses? No, it's for any plants, veggies, um, anything at all, fruit trees, etc. Um, it's very good for silver leaf, right? Okay. Now, silver leaf is a disease that gets into the likes of roses or stone fruit, um, particularly in winter uh, when somebody is pruning them and there's moisture in the air. Uh, the disease enters the cuts, and then you see the silvery leaf appear later on in the spring and the foliage. It's a disease that in the past would kill uh, a rose or a fruit tree, right? Um, normally what we do is we cut off that branch that's got the silver leaf, um, and then we spray it with perfection. And as long as the disease is not too far advanced, it will save the plant. Should we be using perfection as a prophylactic ahead of getting a disease or wait till we get the disease? No. Um, in one of the formulas I have for roses, uh, I suggest that once a month, uh, the lighter uh, dilution rate, four mils per litre, is ideal to spray over your rose during the season. So from the spring, once it leaf up um, through to the autumn, and that will help uh, prevent black spot and stuff. And now here's an interesting thing too, which I've often thought about. Like we look at our roses or our plants and we look for perfection. In other words, no marks on the leaves, no insects eating the leaves, et cetera, et cetera. But if we go out into the native bush and we look at the plants growing there, yeah, they have these things on them, you know, black spots or they have rusts or they have insects eating them because it's part of nature. Only mm. us being fastidious, wanting perfect-looking plants, worry about those things like black spot, etc., which won't kill the plant, just makes mm. it a bit unsightly. And if you don't like the sight of it, you pluck those leaves off and spray perfection or something, and 
have all perfectly yeah that it is perfection so uh we're on rally check radio real talk with rodney hyde we're talking to professor sir wally richards dso and bar uh, about gardening his journey we've covered off his book we've covered oh we covered off so much um and in, in particular i'm a big fan of magic botanic liquid i'm going to get off here and order the book so ahead of the rush for the 500 i'm going to order some micro microsin and i'm going to in autumn look after my um lawn i know what to do now and i'm gonna go around a little beach forest with a wee plastic bag and pick up some dirt some yeah. litter and I... spread around the beech trees i've planted out to get the microorganisms going wally you're a total treasure i can't wait till next time we talk it's okay. all it's it's i'd come in from gardening on a high and I discovered gardening through you. I was sort of starting to make tentative steps, but you really lifted my enthusiasm and my understanding and my knowledge. And when I've always finished talking to you, I always feel I want to rush out into the garden again and do some more because uh -huh. it's 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 such a wonderful thing. And 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 to be enjoying your veggies, and they do they taste fresh they taste nutritious but they have that taste that you grew them yeah. uh, from a young plant and i've just got some tomatoes coming and we've had strawberries and gosh you eat them and they're just special because you grew them a lot right. let alone yeah. the fact that they've grown in untainted soil grown naturally and they've been grown with love so i thank you for that Please uh, text us at 2057 email us inbox at radleycheck.radio and, and if they it? want the book, if they want the book, yes. which is going fast, they have to go to the mail order website, which is yes. www.0800-466-464, same as our phone number, .co.nz. They order online, and then I will phone them up and I will sort out the uh, motor payment, credit card over the phone, etc. You can't pay for it online. So... They can place the order and any of the other products at the same time. Wally, we love you. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. And that's a great present for anyone that you're stuck for for Christmas. Wally Richards Gardening Book. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Wally. Talk soon. Lovely. Thank you. That was Wally Richards, Professor Guru Gardening. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Remember, send me a text, 2057 email inbox at rallycheck.radio. What a wonderful man. Been gardening for well over 70 years and still loves it, still learning, still has enthusiasm and inspiration to us all. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive Honest Media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057. Email me at inbox at rallycheck.radio. <clears throat> oh, my goodness. I am enjoying Winston Peters. I never thought those words would run together from my mouth, but there you have it. Oh, my goodness. So he accused the media of 
taking bribes from the government. Now, I haven't watched TV news for goodness knows how long. Um, I imagine I am, like a lot of sane people, just can't be bothered with it. But it popped up on X uh, in my feed, and I wore the VHS out watching it over and over and over again. The wailing and the gnashing of teeth. This was from a, a particular political reporter called, is it Jessica Lynch? And she was reporting live. Oh, the Deputy Prime Minister accused them of taking bribes. She explained that their editorial independence is sacred. That this was all about democracy. And that the statement was unbecoming of a Deputy Prime Minister falsely accusing the media of taking bribes from government. Well, let's just check that out because my understanding from experts is that the media took millions and millions and millions of dollars from the government through a journalism fund, but in, the money was actually technically a loan and could be demanded back if they didn't meet the terms of the loan. And amongst the terms of the loan were that you had to be, I'll get the words, uh, you had to explain how the media will adhere to the co-governance model of understanding the treaty. If you didn't understand the co-governance model of the treaty, you wouldn't get the loan. Hmm. And that they had to agree that if they deviate from presenting that perspective, then effectively they would have defaulted on their loan and the money could be taken back. So let me get this right. Here's millions and millions of dollars, journalists, but you have to follow and promote this government policy. It's a policy that's not true. There's no co-governance in the treaty. None. So you have to run this lie that the treaty is about co-governance in order to qualify for the money. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Give us the money, give us the money. Oh, millions. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Journalism. Oh, it's so wonderful. Millions and millions of dollars. Our editorial independence is sacred. They just sold out for a few bucks, totally sold out, didn't even hesitate, jumped at it, sacred. So they were paid by the government to run government propaganda because co-governance isn't true. It's a policy. It's not a policy from the treaty. That's entirely made up. And yet there they are gabbing away and they're sitting there saying on their high horse, our editorial independence is sacred. It's one thing for Mr. Peters to say this on the campaign trail, but now he's sworn in. He's a deputy prime minister. 
Oh, how I love it that he's still saying it, and he's Deputy Prime Minister. Oh, it's unbecoming of a Deputy Prime Minister. Why? What is unbecoming of a Deputy Prime Minister telling the truth? I don't know whether legally, technically, it's a bribe in terms of if you prosecuted someone in court. But if you pay someone and they have to parrot the line because that's they've taken the money, don't tell me the editorial independent. Don't tell me about democracy. When you've taken the money to push a government policy, mm, everyday language, I call that a bribe. And particularly so, if I don't push the line, I actually got to hand the money back. What do the media do now? Because now co-governance isn't a thing. How do they question it or discuss it? Does that mean that New Zealand Air would take their loan back? Oh, I hope so. Let's see them squeal then. And so Winston Peters was making a truthful accusation. Our media took money from the government to push a political line on the treaty, on COVID, on you name it. An everyday common language that's a bribe. They can't be trusted because they sold their editorial independence. That is the point that Mr. Peters is so rightly making. The fact that the media are squealing about it just proves that they're upset. And sometimes the truth hurts because not once did Jessica Lynch or News Hub explain why Mr. Peters was wrong because you took the money, you took the bait, you took the line and you pushed it on the people of New Zealand. And don't give us this flannel about your sacred editorial independence because you sold that independence long ago. And don't give us this flannel about democracy because there's been an election and you're still pushing the same old tired lines that you were paid to push. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. Remember, send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. You may recall that we had Roger Beatty from uh, Beatty Insulators on the program a while back, and he was complaining about farmlands, which is owned uh, by farmers. It's a farmer cooperative, as I understand it. And uh, he was complaining that farmlands had always sold Beatty Insulators, but because Beatty Insulators were refusing to pay farmlands rebates, they were no longer supplied. Now, the way the rebates work is you pay farmlands to stock your product. And apparently this is quite a common practice in retail in New Zealand with the big companies. Seems wrong to me. Seems sort of like a hidden hidden payment. Um, anyway, uh, Roger Beattie and Beattie Insulators are refusing to pay the rebate, um, and therefore you cannot see their insulators in a farmland store. We asked farmlands to respond, and they did, which is good of them. Thank you, farmlands. 
Kiora, here is some information in response to your queries. Farmland's role is to be buying is to be a buying group for Kiwi farmers and growers in a way that brings our customers' buying scale together to get the best results for our customers and shareholders. To do this, we need to operate a centralized buying model that allows us to negotiate for much larger volumes of product from our suppliers based on national consumer demand. We have been undertaking our product rationalization program to reduce our stocked product range and to centralize our buying to deliver the best outcomes for our customers and shareholders. We have removed significant duplication of products from the range stocked in store. Many of these products are still available to be ordered from farmlands, including BT insulators. We look to work with suppliers who can offer the most benefit to our co-op and our customers. Our criterion for selecting customers is to first and foremost consider customer demand. We also look at whether suppliers have a complete product range, whether they have the scale to deliver nationally, what infield and after-sales support they provide, as well as the commercials involved that support us to provide the best price or most value to our shareholders and customers. The new way of operating supports us to be more efficient, focusing our retail teams on supporting customers, running a more efficient buying team and processes, improving our supply chain to reduce transport costs and increase product availability for customers. Ultimately, this will also support us to reduce our overheads and provide better value to our customers. The changes we have made are not about rebates. Many of our suppliers do offer rebates as a common part of an overall commercial deal. These rebates are factored into our overall margin to ensure we can price as low as possible for our customers. It's worth noting that some suppliers who do offer rebates are not included in our core range now. As already referenced, BD insulators are still available through farmlands if customers specifically want to order them. It would be inappropriate to discuss a specific commercial agreement or why BD insulators are not a core range product. We have discussed these aspects with Roger and are available to do so again. And that's from Daniel Hurd, the General Manager Marketing from Farmlands. Well, thank you, Daniel. And of course, uh, you'll recall uh, Roger Beattie having a quite different view uh, to Daniel. And I guess that's for them to resolve if they can. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can text me 2057, email me inbox at radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. 
And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, and it's a special time. It's mailbag. Oh, I love it. It's such a full one. And this is what we're supposed to do on Tuesday. I do apologize. Remember, you can text me 2057, email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. Here we had uh, the power free at the kindergarten and my reflection on that. Remember, Rodney, loved your reflections on the power free. Keep going. And Rodney, think pa in Karaka. Karaka, the tree, and pa being a place of gathering. Oh, that was for me saying Pakaraka. Yeah. The link interview. Remember the CB radios? Hi, Rodney. Love your shows. You're a legend. Just wondering if you can kindly send me a link on the CB radio talk you had. Trying to buy one. Cannot find it on replay. That's been sent. Uh, thank you. Uh, Kira Rodney, love your show. I caught the end of one of your shows the other day. You were talking about CB radios, etc. I'm just trying to get the details for this so I can get one or two. I've been thinking about CBs for a couple of years for my SHTV. <laughs> Something hits the fan. Preparedness. Many thanks, Leighton. That's been sent through. Wendy Fowler, remember her? talking about uh, sex education in our schools. Hi, Rodney. I'm a retired teacher, 80 years old, just tuned in. The attack on children's innocence by the UN and WHO's educational directives is nothing short of criminal. I agree. Evil, actually. I agree. Anti-human. I agree. Destroying the souls of all future generations. I agree. I've always thought bad people were just damaged, but now I believe in evil. We must fight this with all our might, Donna. Well said, Donna, and I agree with you 100%. All this trans BS has its roots in cultural neo-Marxism with intention to destabilize and destroy Western democracy. These efforts are very wide and far-reaching. Cheers, Phil. Agree. Please don't stop talking about this, Rodney and Wendy. You are both incredible. We need more people speaking out about this terrible agenda against our children. Thank you so much, Harley. Yes, and the new government's addressing it. Yay, hey. We're going to make them address it. Hi, Rodney. Just wanting to give listeners an alternative to mainstream education if they're concerned about curriculum in public schools. Mount Hobson Connected is an online school staffed with teachers who still think critically. Most lost their jobs due to mandates and teach those skills too. Our daughter attends and we're amazed at her progress and she now has friends all over the country. How wonderful. So if you're at your wit's end with public system, look it up. It would be awesome to have the fabulous Sarah Boyle, who is principal on your show. Thanks, Libby. That's a great idea. Um, Mount Hobson School was a school run by Alwyn Paul and his wife in my electorate, and I loved that school. Oh, my goodness. They bought a house, mortgaged up, and started a school, and they did so well, and now they've gone online. You're brilliant. I fully back you, Rodney. Oh. So sweet. Don't stop ever. Appreciate you. You are right about the obvious regender change I'm referring to. So heartbreaking, Annie. Uh, then we had Neva and Yotam K. Remember permaculture? Don't mention where they're from. Chloe's rules will break what a deck they're from. <laughs> there is radius. Uh, Neville Munro, remember on Scott Watson. We're well, sorry I missed your session on Scott Watson. I read the excellent book Trial by Trickery by Keith Hunter. Oh, my goodness, that's a great book and his documentary. I think he's innocent of the murders. 
of Olivia and Ben after reading this very thorough account of the trial. I hope that his case can be looked at again, as I believe the real travesty has occurred. Keep up the good work, Bell. Me too, but I'm afraid with Judith Collins in there as Attorney General, fat chance. Mind you, be the Minister of Justice. Maybe. I must look up who that is. My wife and I went to see David Seymour speak at Oriwa back in August, and he repeatedly said his priority was policies first and foremost and not the baubles of office. So him being Deputy PM is a huge U-turn and all about him, not the party or the voters. Nothing but a turncake. Glad I voted for New Zealand first. Good for you. For Rodney, listening to your discussion of the deputy role, Seymour would boost his image hugely by deferring to the elder's experience and suggest Winston as deputy. Having the experience of Winston's hand on Homer Simpson's shoulder. Well, <laughs> once you see it, you can and see it. Having uh, the experience of Winston's hand on Homer Simpson's shoulder would give us far less concern for our future. Homer Simpson. Rodney, love your dissection of the coalition, Kingsley. Oh, my gosh, Rodney, just priceless. Excellent outcome. Appreciate the commentary, Rodney and Tane. Here, here, Rodney. Thanks, Rodney. I'm actually crying with relief. It's such a great outcome today. Me too. Now, let's hold them to their promises, eh? Thanks for all you and the RC team are doing. Huge hugs, Jackie from Tasman. Hallelujah. I was just so worried that Winston would fold his previous occasions. I think I would join New Zealand first. Good for you. Tears for joys. For joy. Hi, Rodney. Thanks for you and Tane's session on the new government. I must say I haven't listened to RNZ since day one of RCR, but today I did check their news page. Didn't see anything about the COVID inquiry or quite a few of the other policies you told us about. Never gone to their site again. A couple of questions. The disinformation project, is that gone now? I think that was uh, funded out of the PM's office, so it will be gone. Oh. That would be glorious. I think it's part of internal affairs. Oh, it might be. And the COVID inquiry, how long do you think this will take to set up and complete? Uh, I think it should be set up by February, easy. Uh, the one they've got can be expanded and new people brought in. The critical thing to me is that it be open and public and the public have a right to make submissions and to be heard. Everyone should have an opportunity to contribute. We get that out in the open, man, it's going to be a revelation. I'm hoping it'll be thorough and fast. And what about the therapeutics products bill? I understand that's gone. Hope that's a goner. So happy about the who December 1 decision, also stopping all the woke gender and sex education going on. Hope your girls will soon feel safe enough to use public toilets. Agreed. Isn't that a terrible thing that they don't? I've been a lifetime Labour voter until this election. Can't see myself ever voting for them again. Good job all around and especially to you and RCR. Vicky. Thank you, Vicky. So we have just found out New Zealand First has freed us of all remaining mandates and secured a proper, hopefully, COVID inquiry. And now you're playing party music. I certainly feel like I'm at a party. Sometimes voter matters, matters, huh? What a good day for New Zealand, Greg. Prayers answered. Just heard Luxon say, going to change the country and make people's daily lives better. What exactly does that mean? 15 minute cities? Regards, Jan. Well, I think it might if it was just Luxon, but we've got Act in New Zealand First there. Fingers crossed. By the way, loved hearing politics explained with Rodney and Tane. Very upbeat and hilarious commentary. Thanks. Quite agree with you, Rodney. Sounds as if New Zealand is going back to what we used to be. Yes, thank God. Thank you for your overview, Rodney. I'm delighted to what New Zealand First have got out of this agreement. End vaccine mandates, COVID inquiry, end gender ideology, don't bow to who, etc., etc. Wonderful news. Great blessing to New Zealand. Hi, Rodney. Awesome commentary from Friday. And aren't the coalition documents overall fantastic? Yes, they are. Back to one country, carrying out actions and assessments based on need, not race, contracts based on value, not race, and removing 
the co-governance nonsense. Awesome. And love the COVID inquiry. We could make some real headway here. Keep up your casts rolling. Cheers for me. Hi, Rodney. I listened to your chat with Tane last night about the new coalition policy, and I got so excited I couldn't get to sleep. <laughs> ah, well, you should have cuddled the coalition agreements in bed like I did. Great news after our weeks of waiting. Thanks for letting us know, because all that interesting stuff is certainly not in the MSM. No, indeed. All they are is whinging and whining. Ooh, no more money. Oh, not getting paid anymore for pushing co-governance. Oh, upset, lose my job. The sooner that legacy media die, the better the country will be. Hi, team. Listen to Rodney's show on the coalition agreement. So stoked to see common sense prevail and the reversal of all these insane woke policies. Was considering moving to Australia with some of my family. Those plans now on hold. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's great news. This will inspire many of us who have been disillusioned and shocked by the decline of educational standards, the rise of harmful woke imperative at every level of society, government interference, UN interference, and mandated experimental genetic therapies. As a businessman and freedom Loving, freedom-loving citizens now inspired to work together for the greater good of New Zealand and its people. Love RCR, John. Thank you so much, John. That's so nice and so kind. Rodney, I reckon if Luxon was playing the long, long game, he should have put Winston in as PM, <laughs> securing his written signed retirement letter for October 2026. Luxon and Seymour could have had a handshake deal for 2026 and beyond for Seymour having the number two spot. I believe the good Will that would have engendered would be a power of three to the fine policy agreement. Uh, goodwill. Thanks for your fine insights. Good idea, Mark. Well done. Dearest Rodney, I've just listened to your show, Politics Explained. I was listening, I love listening to you on RCR. You're amazing, so refreshing. Oh, I feel like I'm blushing. I can't read it. So sweet. You mentioned how a new coalition repealing many previous government acts, including liberal ideology in schools, which in my opinion is awesome. You also stated you wish libraries will follow suit. So do I. I've had a shocking attitude displayed to me as a rate power and a library patron in my local library. And I was basically told to my face I was anti-trans because I questioned the types and varieties of sexual content books available for children in my library. Isn't that terrible? So can you advise me and whom should I write to reference libraries? Is, is Simeon Brown or is he for local government? Anyone else do you recommend? Many thanks. Write to the mayor. Ask them directly. That's what I'm going to do. Rodney, do you think they'll also look at taking folate out of flour? Oh, I hope so. Another compulsory manipulation of our food introduced by the Labour government. Rodney, first time voting for NZ First. I only did so for COVID inquiry, but I'm very pleased at the pushback of Labour's stupid work policies. Feeling hope for the first time in three years. Regards, D. Good one. Tenako, Rodney, Tane, thanks for your breakdown. Read the coalition agreements. Wow, talk about pushback. Essentially important to me is getting rid of the 300 plus WHO amendments that the WHO are about cast upon sovereign countries that do not reject their amendments. I totally agree we must help them stay focused, committed, and advancing Kiwi sovereignty. Awesome about rejecting the RSE relationships and sexual assault on that Tamariki. Kura, thanks heaps, Floyd. Just listen to Rodney and Tane. Great informative chat. Luxon should close Helen Clark Foundation. <laughs> that would save money and shut down that woke corner. Do they get government money? If they do, they certainly should shut the money down. I thought it was private. Maybe not. Oh, Helen Clark's involved probably on the deep. Thank you, Rodney and the team. Your excellent summary of the coalition endorses the real people of this country's relief that was felt when the communists were booted out of power. We can only hope that the globalist aspirations of Luxon and friends have been put to bed in the meantime. Kind regards, Alan. P.S. I would like uh, have liked at least some pushback on our horrendous abortion laws. The legal murder of babies up to full term in the uterus sickens me, as it should to anyone with a conscience. 
indeed. Subject for Rodney, the 1% transaction tax that Liz Gunn promoted could solve two issues with one, money for their tax cuts, reduction in staff as IID would no longer be required. Could this be suggested for debate? Sure. Rodney liked your positive piece on the coalition agreements and your conclusion. We need to assist to make it come to pass. Great stuff, Peter. Lovely, lovely, lovely. And I get some notes for my eyes only that not to be read out, and I read them most assiduously. Thank you so much. That was Mailbox, late from Tuesday. Remember, text me, 2057, email me, inbox at radio. Thank you for listening. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at radio. Oh, what a show. Oh, my goodness. Ananda Card, wasn't that something? Um, I did not know lead was such a thing. I had no idea that it could be in such concentrations around your house. I had no idea of its effects and its toxicity. I had no idea. I remember something about removing lead from petrol. I didn't know what that meant. I couldn't picture lead and petrol, but you know you don't apply your mind to everything, do you? And the scare that she has been through, and like you don't know, because these things are sort of so invisible, particularly with little infants. So that was scary, but also empowering, because you know if you might have a problem and you know what to do. Better to be informed than uninformed. And isn't Professor Wally Richards just, Wonderful. What a wonderful life and what a wonderful outlook. And he's right. I think plants do talk to us. They do let us know what they need. They do communicate somehow. And I certainly feel that going into my little garden is my blissful place. And I haven't got a very good garden because I'm just starting out. But oh my goodness, it just cheers me up. So thank you, Wally. Thank you not just for sharing uh gardening tips but for something much deeper a spiritual connection to nature and to our food and to the things that we can grow and to the soil and to the world around us that connection and just being an all-around good guy you've been on real talk with rodney hyde rally check radio i look forward to next week and being back with you if you'll have me thank you so much You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.